Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Welcome to Nightlight. I'm your host, David Gallus. I want to shout out to my audience. Thank you for listening. You're the lifeblood of my show. I just want to ask you, please click the follow, subscribe, or like buttons on our Nightlight Blog Talk radio page or our Nightlight YouTube channel and my Nightlight with David Gallus Facebook page. That helps me know you're listening, plus you'll get all of our updates. My guest today is Irene Marie. A successful international entrepreneur, she received the Lifetime Achievement Award in 2015 by the Film and Entertainment Council and awarded International Businesswoman of the Year. In addition, she partnered with MTV on her hit reality TV show, Eighth and Ocean, and spearheaded the rebirth of South Miami Beach. If this weren't enough, Irene is deeply spiritual, and since 1998, she helped build two of seven sacred energy circles around the world. She is also a certified teacher of infinite possibilities and the co-author and or excuse me, the co-founder of the Foundation of Heaven, and she co-authored the Book of Heaven for a Brand New Day and The Sweet Life. I bring, Irene brings new insights and messages from God. You think you got a handle on this? I bet you'll be dis, be surprised and dazzled by her insights. Irene, time to let your light shine and inspire us. Welcome to Nightlight. Hi, David. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be Hi. here. <laughs> this is fantastic. It is. It's uh, wonderful, so, too. It feels like we're going a, a full circle and coming back around after a long time of doing some work together. Yes, we were actually part of the group that uh, was making these sacred circles. And so she and I uh, worked on the last two circles. One was in Peru and one was in Turkey. And um, since then, we just haven't been, we kind of separated our ways. And lo and behold, 20 years later, we reconnected and here we are on a radio show. Fantastic. It is. So there was actually, this is a very exciting um, journey that you've been on, and there's multiple components to this. And everything that you were writing and that you've been a part of with the, the, the Foundation of Heaven 
wouldn't have happened without these circles. And maybe you can go ahead and explain a little bit about what those circles are, where they are, and who was involved with this. Well, there are seven what we call sacred circles. They're actual physical circles that are on uh, in seven different countries and five different continents in the world. And we call them pinpoint locations that, uh, that uh, are energetic by nature. We were asked to go and create them. Each one is specific, given specifically. But just let me jump back because I always have to be careful when I'm talking that people don't understand the whole story. So I have to try to break it down. The circles wouldn't exist. There would not be circles. There wouldn't be a sweet life book. There wouldn't have been journeys if it hadn't been for a woman by the name of Joanne, Joanne Stillwagon. Joanne is the voice that all of our information comes through. She's a mystic and a psychic, and all everything that we have ever done has been direct source from other realms that come through her. So with regards to the circles, the process with which it happened is that Joanne would be given a vision. And oftentimes that vision came alone, without any explanation, years before she was guided that a circle needed to be built. During that period of time, as she's also a uh, psychologist and has had a practice for 40, 40 years at least, people would come in and out of her life and somehow they would get involved in the work, just like you did, David, and like I did, and like uh, dozens of other people did. And eventually, more and more information would come to her about the circles, uh, where they would be, where we would be going to build these circles, the source, which was the energy for that particular circle, it could, uh, it has been, it is, for example, the Aborigine, the Native American Indian, the, uh, the Buddha, uh, and on and on. And each circle is in one of these countries that carries the energy of this spirit. We would go to that country. We'd be guided. The process was very much like a... Uh, uh, what do you call it, an egg hunt? When you go from place to place and you're given a little clue and then that clue takes you to the next clue, that that's how the process of the circles work. We get to our location, we'd be given a clue, we drive around usually a lot. For example, in Peru, we drove over 3,500 miles. In Turkey, I think we hit 5,000 miles, if I'm not mistaken, David. Yes, we did. And then we would ultimately physically build these circles, which were made out of large boulders and with specific dimensions. And once we completed building those circles, what, what I believe took place is that the energy that Uh, was aligned to that circle, was now free to communicate, to speak to us, which they did, 
give us information about their connection with God and how they live their human lives here on earth. And all of that information was compiled into our first book called The Book of Heaven for a Brand New Day. Yes. And I would just like to mention that these seven circles have seven different types of energy, and they are anchored. And what, what I remember hearing is, is that they were, they were all of them worked together as a portal to open up brand new information for the world. And these were all uh, made in the, uh, the 90s. And I remember um, Joanne being told way before she did the first circle, which was in um, Southern California, that she was going to be doing this work. And she says, oh, I think you're out of your mind. And, you know, it took quite a bit of um, cajoling and kind of pushing on their part to get Joanne to kind of start moving. But once she did, she, they, they built that circle out there in the kind of the Southern California desert. And lo and behold, she was told that that circle was 50,000 years old and that she's resurrecting it. And I just thought mm-hmm. that was so amazing that this, this project had been going on for so long and it had failed at every uh, time that they tried it. And it wasn't until this time around that it actually succeeded. Uh, I I don't have that recall, but, you know, that's why there's uh, several of us that have done this work. Uh, For me, what I remember is that what was discovered was that the land that ultimately we rebuild a circle on was either an ancient circle, had been a circle for like in in, uh, Australia, the Aborigines Circle, and in California, in uh, in the Morongo, in Morongo Valley, where the other circle is, um, or it was on sacred land. Yes. Which sacred land being, from my perspective now as I look back, sacred land being land that has a certain energetical vibration. And that's the purpose why those circles are built there, because that allowed that vortex to to be ignited or reignited for the voice of the uh, of the energy to come through and to speak. What we later found out when we were doing the journey for the Sweet Life book, what was later told to us was that these seven circles actually were antennas and guidelines for the light beings that anchored their base that we discovered under our ocean floor that's, that God calls God's heaven under the sea. Well, that was, um, so when I was doing the work, when, and I stepped away, there was, there was all this information that you received um, outside of that, that particular package. And, you received all this new information and the foundation of heaven and um, foundation in the book um, of heaven. And then the sweet life all came after um, the work that I was involved with. But I just like to just mention that there are these seven circles and the seven circles, as I, as I remember, there was one in Yucca Valley, Native American Indian. There was uh, one that was in Australia. So that was the Aboriginal circle. There is one in, at the base of Mount Fuji, and that was the Samurai Energy Circle. Then we have the circle that was in Tibet, and that was the Buddha Energy. 
And then there was uh, the Madagascar energy circle, which was the witch doctor. And then there, there was the Peruvian circle, which I think that was the Christ energy circle. And then the, Tur- Excuse the circle me, in what Turkey. Did, you say? did I, I think that was called the, the Christ circle, the Christ energy circle. The spirit of the Christ yeah. circle. And then the seventh one was the eye of God. And um, that was a little different in shape. It was shaped like a giant almond. It was 72 feet long, and I think it was 12 feet tall. And it, it was an almond-shaped eye with a, a, a five-pointed star in the center. So anyway, these were all very profound experiences, um, our energy circles. And it was this, this work had a profound effect on me. Um, I know that uh, my psychic energies just kind of like skyrocketed, and I really opened up. And um, I ended up, once I kind of walked away, I found myself completely inspired by making all these, what I refer to as mystery symbols. I ended up writing two or three scripts, and then I ended up writing my book, uh, Interviewing Jesus. So these circles had a profound impact on my life, and I would imagine it had a profound impact on yours as well. Of course. Uh, when When I met Joanne, and started the work I had um I was in my mid forties and around forty years old I had this desire or this thought in my mind that there was something missing. I was very successful in uh the business I had entrepreneured. At that time I had four children, a good marriage, a happy marriage But there was something that I just felt was missing. And one night, I remember, uh, my office was on Ocean Drive in South Beach, and I had a beautiful view, and there was this golden moon that was coming up. And I turned towards that moon in, in a loud voice, in my voice, not in my head. I said, God, why am I really here? And It was a crazy question to ask because there was so much in my life that was going on and to be grateful for, but there was something that I felt was missing. Well, when I asked that question, my life began to change. It didn't change overnight dramatically. What I've learned through through the years and through my soul journey is that the evolution, your evolution of consciousness and your evolution of your soul happens step by step. But there are profound experiences that you have that can catapult you much faster and further on. And, of course, uh, one, of, one of many was meeting Joanne, getting involved in the work, doing the last two circles, which are the ones that I was involved in. So because they were contradictory, it was very contradictory to the life I was living I was in the fashion world. I lived, uh, I worked with beauty and with uh, enhancing beauty and with things that one might call somewhat superficial. I didn't go deep into the personalities or the beliefs of the thousands of people I was involved in. Even though I did have relationships with these people, I wasn't superficial. But what this work was, was just 
so different to what my daily life of motherhood and wifehood and business were all about. And they rocked the foundation of my beliefs. When I started this work, I, I was brought up as a Catholic. I became the most involved in my Catholic religion was after my third child was born, my son, Charles Alexandre. At that point, I really felt compelled to reconnect with my religious roots. And I traced my kids to church every Sunday, and my husband too. And I felt a, a very deep connection with the mother of Jesus, uh, the Virgin Mary. And the first journey that I went on to Peru rocked my boat because for me personally, there, there was information that was given to me personally about my own life journey, my own past soul that just hit me in a way that was unbelievable, not positive, negative. It just seemed that it couldn't be real, which made me want to question what I was doing with this group and in this group. And from that Catholic background, was it good? Was it evil? What was all of this? In my heart and my feelings, I knew it was right and it was good. But in my mind, I, I just couldn't. It was very hard for me to cope with it. It was very hard for me to integrate back into my life when I came back from a journey. It was quite a challenge. Yes, it, it happened to me too. I know that I, I kind of felt like there was a lot of information that, that I grew up with, and it was almost like it was elementary school stuff. And then when you got into the circle work and every kind of um, endeavor I had after that, it was almost like I was working on a PhD. And there was a ma- massive shift and a massive gap between what, what I understood beforehand and what was going on at that time, plus what happened afterwards, it was just this giant, accelerated, massive force that was moving in my life that was very different than what I was uh, geared towards, what I was taught, what I was expecting, and how my life would unfold. And then this this came along, and this energy really um, kind of solidified me as more of a kind of an explorer and an adventurer than anything else. I mean, my God, one of the things that we were, uh, we were told when we were in Turkey is that we were, we were accomplishing the impossible. Mm-hmm. Yes. And of course we didn't really, I, well, I'm not going to speak for you, but for myself, I didn't really even understand what that was. Yeah. What we did in Turkey just just what we did, David. The fact that we crossed those seven we crossed seven borders of countries that that uh, are uh, around Turkey. Help me if I, yeah. I go wrong on the details. Georgia. Iran, yeah, Georgia. Iran, uh, Armenia, Iran. Yeah, Iraq. Iraq, Syria. Where else did we go? And we went to Bulgaria. The only there's seven borders uh, surrounding seven countries surrounding Turkey, and we went to six. So we went to the B- Bulgaria as well. Right, and so, and we were yeah. told that there were three men. Were you three men and 
and seven women. Something like there that. Was, anyway. There was there were four men and eight women. Okay, four men and eight women. We, yeah. we always all dressed in the same um, kind of hiking um, type of gear, the same color pants and T-shirts and jackets. And that was really so that if somebody, which we weren't supposed to, move away from the group, they could easily be spotted. But we were a bizarre-looking group. On yeah. top of we're that, all, the women had brown. been... Pardon? I said we were all in chocolate brown. Yes, we were all in chocolate brown. And all the women had to wear sunglasses and never take them off when we were in public because of the customs of that part of the world. And we could never drive. The men had to do the driving. The women couldn't drive. So there is, and our mission was before we found the location for the circle, which was a journey in itself, just building that circle. The mission was to cross these borders, to have the men cross the borders. So think about it, from Turkey to Iraq, from Turkey to Iran, from Turkey to Syria, the men had to cross the borders. They had, we had special glass, little glass jars. The men had to collect soil from the ground and bring it back. And we had to store that without one of those glass jars touching the other in in our trunks as we were continuing this journey. So the women would stay in Turkey by the border control, wherever that was. The men would cross. We pray that they would come back safely with their soil. And then we would move on. And we accomplished all of that. Every country, the the, the boards, they made it. They made it there. They brought back the soil. One very close call was the border of Syria Iraq. or Iraq. It was Iraq. It was Iraq. So it, I, ha- I have to tell this story because it's unbelievable. Yeah. So we're guided to go to to the border between Turkey and Iraq. And there we, we were greeted by what's called the Mokhtar, which is like the mayor of a, the little village there, who was charming with us. He was really charming. He invited us all to have tea, which they often did in Turkey anyway, lovely mint tea. And we had one of our men, Fergus, who unfortunately has passed away, had been in Tur- had gone to Turkey several months before we made the journey to learn Turkish. So he he did a pretty good job of being a spokesperson for us. And we walked along the border, uh, the border between Turkey. We had our tea. And I remember Joanne saying to me, oh, they're so charming. They're so kind and sweet to us. And during yes. our tea, they'd ask us, well, what are, you, what are you doing in Turkey? And we had decided that the story we should give, if anybody asked what we were doing there, was to say that we were geologists and that we were just, um, uh, we were collecting soil and we okay, were studying soil and all. And we thought we were super smart, that that was a great story to tell. <laughs> 
Well, it wasn't a very great story to tell because, of course, at that time, there were problems between Syria, Iran, Iraq about chemical warfare. And this particular Mukhtar, in his mind, he thought we were coming to test for that. So with smiles and with this warm hospitality, all of a sudden we see this brigade of police cars with their sirens um, lit up coming closer and closer and closer to us until they were right there. And they arrested the men. They took them to jail. They confiscated our passports. And they took us, the women, to the holding place where the jail was. And how long did you all stay in jail? Well, they took us out to this building that was in the middle of nowhere. There was actually no other buildings within eyesight. And it was a pretty flat uh, plane. So this was like a special secret police or police station that was designed specifically for one thing. So when we showed up, we we ended up having to be escorted there. And from there, they interrogated us. So they separated the men and the women. And they took our passports away. And they wanted to know who we were, what we were doing there. And um, they wanted to have a little bit more specific information. And all that was done by undercover um, Secret Service policemen. But we did ultimately get our soil. (laughs) The mission was accomplished. The mission was accomplished. These journeys were were not done. Uh, They weren't weren't, uh, uh, tourists voyages where we went we basically never saw anything that had to do with the history or anything that was famous with the country that we were in we were there specifically to do this work and it was dangerous our families did not know exactly where we were we weren't we weren't we were asked not to tell them Uh, they had an idea they didn't know. My family didn't know I was going to build a circle. My family thought I was on a retreat. So each one of us had to uh, protect the information. And you're wondering, if you wonder why was that asked, now looking back, I believe it was because we really had to be in a very pure energy not only our energy had to be as pure as possible, hence why we drove around a lot when we first arrived in the country. That was kind of just to cut off our thoughts, our minds, and our energy from our normal lives, from our homes, and from what we had left so we could be in the energy of the work we were there to do. But you can imagine our families. This was in 2000. Yeah, we were going to the Middle East. We were going to the Middle East, and needless to say, if the if our families understood or knew more about what we were doing and where we were going, their energy would have been fearful, and that was what we was trying to be avoided. Nothing more than that, in my opinion. So these circles were very important. And uh, those, the four of us who ultimately made the foundation of having the nonprofit organization, which we were asked to make 
to protect all of the work and all of the information and to place it in the foundation. Uh, the four of us really felt that uh, the work that we've been asked to do was done. We were finished. We had created the circles. We had placed markers in each circle in the seven countries around the world. We had I uh, created the website. We had made the Book of Heaven with all of the information from each one of the spirits and cultures of each different circle. We thought our job was done. But it wasn't. And this seems to be this seems to be part of the interesting issue on on how some of this works is that you never get a big picture. All you like you were saying earlier is like you just get these little clues, you get these little hints, you get these little pushes. Like this is what you need to do now, and this is what you need to do now. I know that when I um, when we finally completed the the turkey circle, I just felt like boy, that was just something that I you know it was an extraordinarily profound experience, but I also just felt like, you know, it's time to move on from that. And yet I think I am um, completely in admiration of the fact that Joanne and the other women, you included, continued on. And during that period, after that, after all those seven circles were completed, there was still more work to do. And you ended up creating the foundation of heaven. And then you ended up with, you know, doing the book as well. And then all that was necessary to get both the Foundation of Heaven working and then the plaques out there on each one of the circles. And, of course, the circles are out um, in very remote areas in seven different countries. So that was no small feat. So I can totally appreciate, you know, how you just felt like, okay, we've got the foundation up. We have the book out. We've done the circles. We've got the plaques. So now I guess we can get kicked back on the couch and watch some TV now and a really good movie. Uh, but that didn't seem to happen, did it? <laughs> that wasn't what happened afterwards. <laughs> no, it's not. And and I, I again, you know, now I'm a veteran of over 25 years of this work, so I have some hindsight, and I do understand that the reason the picture, the whole picture, is never shown to you is because you wouldn't take the first step if you knew the whole picture. It's yeah. just, you just wouldn't. None of us would have. But, yes, that was not the The end. The wisdom in Turkey was it's point to point. If you want to accomplish something very big, you have to go point to point. Don't worry about the big picture. Just go from here to there, from there to there, from there to there, from there to there, and then you just keep building and building and building, and eventually you get the whatever it is that you're involved with, it gets completed. So, um that was part of what I, you know, learned as well as, you know, you have to accept and trust and, and you have to make huge sacrifices. I mean, to do all this work, it's not, it wasn't like fun and it wasn't easy peasy and it wasn't exciting. And boy, I mean, we had to walk three miles a day. We had to eat certain foods. We had to walk, we had to climb stairs every, every day. We started off at 150 and then every week we had to add another 10. And when we reached 300, We'd have to back down. And so doing all of that work and then all of the work of having to go out to the circles and the other prayers and things like that, it was, a, it was an enormous and time-consuming event that required a great deal of sacrifice. And the sacrifice is really what was, is necessary, you know, to, to be obedient, to follow, and to stick to your guns. Well, yeah, it, was, it was not easy. It, yeah, it's a commitment. No, it's commitment. 
and it's also faith. And yes. you're right about point to point because that's a life message. And we can particularly see it today in what's going on in the world is we've got to go from today to tomorrow. And we have to work as best as we can to mediate the thoughts that are going through our mind that are influenced by news, media, it doesn't matter what, you know, what side or what belief you have, but they're influenced by it. And to really allow ourselves to be open to the possibility of something else that's not being told to us by someone else. I think that that's a very important thing. And to have faith, to have faith that there is something bigger than us, whatever you may call it, uh, universal power, God, Buddha, Muhammad, it doesn't matter. It definitely doesn't matter to God what you call him, because as he says in the Sweet Life book, they're all him anyway. <laughs> We're all talking about the same being. Yeah. It's remarkable. So okay, so we're looking at um, so let's just say we we've got all that behind us. You've done the foundation of heaven and the circles and the book of heaven, and now you've done all of that. And what happens after that? Because once you end up going to the to Bali and you go to the Java Seas, we're lo- I'm looking at about ten or eleven years between the last circle that was built to this particular trip. So what happened after you did the, all the other work um, with the foundation of heaven and, and that book, what happened after that? Well, uh, well, we, we tried to promote the book. We, it took time. It took several years to, to get to, remember we all had jobs. And yes. we'd all dedicated a lot of time to building the last two circles. So there was a breath that was taken and not the same kind of focus that we had to accomplish the the two circles. So there was time that it took to develop the website, and it took a lot of time to take the transcripts of over Oh, 12 or 15 years of circle building and all the yeah. information that came yeah. through to compile that book, the book of heaven. And it's compiling. We did not write, other than perhaps an introduction or something, but we did not write those books. We wanted to keep them as close to the word that was, the words that were received in the in the tone that they were received and the cadence that they were received and put them into some kind of uh, context that was readable because it was a lot of information. And the book of heaven in particular was uh, differed very much from what the sweet life book was. The book of heaven was more a spiritual cadence to it a spiritual language, uh, the way it read, uh, even though the information it wasn't that the information was spiritual, but it was also different. The way that, for example, the samurai described the culture of his nation, the, the samurai was representative of the Japanese and their deep and profound beliefs. 
and how they were living in connection with their God and showing that to us in the Book of Heaven through the examples of journeys, a journey. How do you get to the sun? How do you get to the sun? That's one of the stories of the samurai in the, in the Book of Heaven. Anyway, I'm diverging here. The point is that it took several years to get the Book of Heaven to meet, to come together, and to get the Book of Heaven completed. And all of that was always done here in Miami, where I am. In other words, Joanne, Roseanne, myself, were the four founders of the foundation, one of the executives of the foundation, would come to Miami to do the work. And the reason was, was that we still had information that was going to be channeled to us along with the directions of how to put the book together. And we were told that the energy here in Miami, particularly where I was, which was um, we would do most of the work right there on on Ocean Drive, that vortex of what one calls the Bermuda Triangle, that energy vortex allowed the spirits to come through and speak to us easier than anywhere else here in the United States that we could all get together on. So I find the world so fascinating. That the concept that that's, that vortex is a, a kind of a portal for these these intelligences to come through in a what a, an easier manner is that kind of the way you think the way you would describe yeah, it? I don't think easier manner is the right way. I mean Joanne had to have to be at a certain vibration. You know, all channelers, from my experience, are channeling within the vibration that they have. There are many realms and many dimensions, right, in our universe. And channelers being that they are this telephone between a dimension, a vibration, a frequency to whoever is, 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 is receiving the information. I think right. for Joanne to have the highest level or frequency of energy that she could to be able to receive the highest level and frequency of information, that's why for the, the Book of Heaven, we were requested to come here. And I'm going to tell you that we had hours of channeling, hours. I had hired a uh, a transcriptor to come, and she would come every night, pick up the tapes. We were doing it on cassette tapes then, and she was right. transcribing every night for 10 days, and she was a fast wow. transcriber. The same thing happened, or the same reason applies, or the same logic applies to well, one of the reasons why the Sweet Life book, much of the information for the Sweet Life book was received in the midst, in the center of the Java Sea, out in the open ocean. 
It was for the same reason. One, so that there was no interference for these very high illuminated galactic beings from the world of light in the center of the universe to be able to, for Joanne to be able to connect to that very high energy and vibration, being in that place and the Java Sea allowed that. But even more than this, let me tell you that Joanne had preparation that was done. There was one particular thing that she told us that happened not long before we left for Indonesia. She was one night in her home in California. She actually experienced what she described as a wiring that it was electrical, energetic wiring that was being placed and, um, and placed and inserted and placed all inside her her inside of her body. That's what it felt like. She was actually felt like she was being wired. So I believe that that is what happened. And that wiring that Joanne's energetic body held and took to our journey in Indonesia along with where we were is what allowed this very, very high energy information to come through and come to us. And when we left, she had the experience back home of that wiring being removed when it was all done. Wow. Wow. That makes sense to me. You know, we're not capable of being able to handle certain information without being modified some way. Right? Something has to go on. Absolutely. So your your question was, what happened between that period of time? Right. And that um, we did yeah. a lot of work. It took a lot of time to get the Book of Heaven completed and done, printed. The, the Luckily, I had, you know, in my office and in my business, I had staff that helped me create the website. And uh, it just, it took time. I had a personal journey that also happened in between that, a personal mystical journey and adventure. And then um, it was 2011, so 2010, perhaps, no, what am I saying? Yes, 2011, 2010. It was somewhere in 2009 that Joanne had her first vision that was related to this new adventure that we were asked to to do. And she was visited by what she called sea angels. They were these glorious angels, as we know, angels, winged angels of uh, magnificent color and hues that were visiting her. Uh, And she was having visions of that. And then she also had a vision of a huge explosion in the ocean floor. Now, these are just pieces again, right? She has no idea what this is for, what it means, but she knows by now that that means something is up. So the first right. thing she does is she call us. She say, girls, I don't know. I thought we were done, but I think maybe we aren't. This is what's happening, and that's 
That's how it begins. And then she saw this very, very large boulder at what looked to be at the bottom of the ocean floor, the entrance to something that was being opened in this extremely bright light that just came forth out of it as this boulder opened up. And that's when we knew that there was something that we had next to do. And we got little by little more and more information. We were asked to go on what they called training missions. Yeah. We So that took over, I remember that took over a year. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. So they they what we found out the training missions to be were uh, the teachers the teachers of the circles the seven sacred circles met with us in different locations in uh, in the United States. We had six different locations in California, and we were visited by the Native American Indian, the Buddha, the Samurai, and the Christ. And that wow. was in 2010. And there we were given, of course, always a download of information. It was interesting because for me, it felt like it was... It, it was information that maybe I had just advanced in consciousness, but I understood them a lot better than I had the first time around. Uh, the, everything that they had to say to us and what they were trying to say to us was giving us advice, if you will, uh, advice about this next journey that we were going to go on, which they told us was going to be the most difficult journey that we had ever undertaken. So we had the six uh, training missions in California. And and let, let me just stop here to say that all of this work has never been funded. Even though we have a non-for-profit foundation, we don't really receive donations and contributions. I'm not saying we couldn't, but no one has really pursued that because we don't really know how. We didn't have time. So everything we ever did, as you know, David, came out of your own funding, your own personal funding. And that includes Joanne. You know, every one of us had to find the money and to come up to pay for the cost involved in what we were doing. So for me, from Miami, I had six different training missions in California. I had to go to California six times. And that was right after I had closed my business of 30 years. Uh, Things were very chaotic in my life. They were very difficult in my life, but... uh, I could. I, I've, I've always just never been able to say no to this work. It's something that's beyond me. I have to find a way, and I have to do it. And then we took two trips, one in uh, 2011 to New Mexico and to Colorado. In New Mexico, we were visited by what we fondly called the grandfather, who was the Aborigine chief. And in, uh, in New Mexico and in Colorado, 
New Mexico and Colorado, yes. That was the grandfather. And then uh, we went in April, I think it was, to San Juan Island in Washington State. And there the witch doctor came to give us lessons, to teach us, to talk to us, to prepare us uh, for the sweet life journey. The witch doctor is interesting because when you say the word witch doctor, people think of have could voodoo. have the tendency to voodoo, black magic. Exactly. This is not no. This is not who the witch doctor is. Again, it's a a culture. Remember that the circle is in Madagascar. It's a culture that relates to the people from that part of the world and how they connect with God and what their ceremonies and rites are and prayers are and ways of being one with God. The witch doctor represents that and um, he's a very fascinating character. And then in May, we went to Alberta, Canada, and there we met with the energy of uh, that was identified to us as Gam- Gamforte. He was the messenger from the world of light, the messenger from the intelligence of light, the creator of everything in this universe and beyond. And that was the first time that we realized that he was also the energy of the circle in Turkey, the eye of God. That was the really? same. That's weird to me. Yes. Yes. That was so what the was same. that energy like? Well, the Agam Yeah. Brilliant in in all term, in all senses. He's brilliant. He's a brilliant light. He's brilliant in uh the way that he speaks to us and the knowledge and the comfort and the love that he shares. Uh and he just gave us what we needed still to find the strength to go on this adventuresome journey. And he's also in the sweet life. He has a passage in the sweet life where he's uh, spoken to us and he had uh, something very, very important to to say to us and wanted to be included in in the book. So he's the voice, if you will, of the even though we we have spoken directly the intelligence of light, the creator of everything, known and unknown. But Gamforte is his messenger and speaks for him. Let's put it that way. We've had at least one direct message from Forte, the intelligence of light, that we were given that was very shocking, I guess you can say. A lot of times the information that is received is shocking for me. I'm just, all, all I can talk about is for myself. I evolve into it. My energy adjusts to it. And then it becomes a certain, in a certain way, normal. But I don't know if this message will ever be normal. 
we asked when it was given to us if it was meant to be included in the Sweet Life book. And Forte told us that decision is yours. In other words, the, the four of us that authored and worked on the Sweet Life book. And we ultimately decided that we were not going to include it in the book at this time. That if the conversation grew organically and that if people became interested in all this information that has already been, that's mind-boggling, controversial, beyond belief, that's in the sweet life already, then we (laughs) could further discuss this last message from, from Forte and make that public. Okay, well, let's just kind of then go into you. Once you go through all these training missions and you go to Canada, was there another place outside of the San Juan Islands in Canada that you went? Oh, yes, we went to Molokai oh. in Hawaii. I forgot that. <laughs> so we were told we had to go to Hawaii. We had to rent a boat. We had to go out onto the water for 24 or 48 hours and not dock. So we did that, of course. <laughs> we always do it. And we had to, we really didn't understand at the time why we were asked to do it. It wasn't particularly pleasant. It was very choppy and rough and the waters and being confined in that area. At that time, I'm just going to guess on the number. We ultimately were seven that went to Indonesia, I think at that that time we were between 12 and 14 people who thought they wanted to be part of this journey, and uh, about half of them fell away before the journey came. But to Molokai, they were all there. And we later understood that that was one of the most important training missions we took because without understanding or realizing it, it prepared us for the two weeks that we were going to be on one of the most turbulent waters in the world, the Java and the Bali Sea, without ever putting our feet on land to take this mission and this journey. So Molokai was another journey we went on. So now after all of this training, then it's time to go, and you all packed up and you left and you went over to Bali. Is that correct? That's correct. And then from Bali, you had to find a boat, a captain, and you needed to all uh, get on the boat. And then I, if I'm not mistaken, didn't you have like a film crew because you're going to do like a reality TV show? Uh, well, we tried to get funding, not so much for reality TV show. We were looking at more just being able to document the journey and perhaps have a documentary. But we weren't successful in doing that. What I was successful in doing from a a dear old friend of mine who was the producer of the Eighth and Ocean show, TV show, he he brought some people together, camera crews, film microphone people, and we did uh, tape and videotape some of our first meetings for The Sweet Life. But as we didn't get funding to have a crew follow us to really do a documentary, we did find one of his associates who had worked for him. 
he was he is a uh, photographer for reality TV, a videographer, a photographer, and he also dives undersea. And he told us, he said, hey, I'll come along with you. I won't charge you if you pay for all my expenses. And if I can stay there, because I love surfing, I've been to Bali before, and I'll stay and surf afterwards. And that's what what we did. So we do have film of the whole Voyage, David Sullivan is his name, who did that for us. So very, very grateful for him to have come along. And we've been guided that we needed to ha- to find and hire a dive master to find the boat. That was done before, not the dive master, but the boat was done by Roseanne, who is the secretary of the foundation, and she worked in production and TV for a long time. And she did everything to bring together the trip. Kind of like what Deborah did, David, when we, yeah. you know, she would get the tickets and all that. And Roseanne did the same thing. She found the boat. She researched it. She hired it. She, the, the one night that we had to spend in Valley, where we were going to spend. And when we got back the one night and everything else that had to do with physically making the journey, the ticket, coordination, and all that Roseanne did. So we arrived with a boat, and well, a boat hired. We were told that we had to hire a dive master because David, our, our, our videographer, he couldn't dive without a dive master. You know, you always have to have that. And also, I had been told or asked that, uh, that I would be the only one of the, the team that would dive in Bali. And I was asked if I would dive. Now, I have a very, very high respect for the sea and the ocean. And it's not something that um, that pulls me towards it. <laughs> Matter of fact, I'm very respectful. I'm not somebody, even when I'm going to dive in just to have fun, I'm thinking about what's underneath there that I'm diving into. But again, here we go. When I'm asked to do something, I say, okay, I guess I have to do it. So I took my, my diving lessons. I got certified. I bought the equipment. I did everything that I was asked to do, and I was also one of the divers. <laughs> it's crazy. You know, I know. I, I, go, I go from my high-heeled shoes uh, and my models to diving in the Indonesia Sea with my tail between yeah. my legs because <laughs> I'm so scared. Yeah, in a, in a wetsuit and a tank and a mask and, you know, Air supply. Well, let me tell you, my my uh, my wetsuit was very stylish. <laughs> my my <laughs> things there were white. They were beautiful. My mask was perfect. <laughs> I always that's just who I am. I do it with style. What can I say? <laughs> so anyway, we found our dive master. He was wonderful. I can't think of his name right now. It'll come back to me. He was, uh, I think, Dutch. I think he was Dutch, living in Bali. And didn't ask too many questions, which was wonderful because we didn't have too many answers. 
The same with yeah. the owner of the boat that we hired. He was Australian. The boat that uh, that was chosen was actually a boat for um, was a boat for surfers. So later we found out that it wasn't the ideal boat to go out into the open sea on, but it just seemed wonderful to us that at that moment in time, we had a crew of five or six men. The captain was very young. He was wonderful. We had two cooks. I didn't eat very much. It was an old boat. It was rocky, very rocky at times. Yes. And uh, uh, it was a real, it was a real adventure. So that was waiting for us when we got to Bali. Uh, and so what? If you go, so now you go ahead, you're onto the boat. It's all there, and now you're going out to sea. So this is your D-Day kind of mission, and you're now moving out into the ocean, and you're not going to be docking. Is that correct? You're going That's out, and correct. it's going to be a couple of days. That we'll be anchoring, although we did dock. We docked at one island. We did not get off the boat. We had to dock because we had problems with the motor, and we had to wait for a replacement to come uh, to fix the the engine, the 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 blade there. What is that called? Yeah. It turns. Okay. The propeller. Uh, so that we the propeller. Voila. Uh, so we did dock. Most of the time, we were anchored. Off of shore. What was your question again? Oh, I was what just going to say this is a little bit like the D Day. You know, you you get on the boat oh. and now you start moving towards out into the, the the Java Sea, which is at the base of the Marianas Trench, which is the lowest point on the planet. And you're at the southern the end the of that. Deepest. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay, so, so now you're going out, and you've had no, all wait, these other wait, experiences. This is important. So this, okay. we, we arrived one day, and we had one full day in Bali that we had some things to do. We had to find the coordinate necklaces, something that we had to buy and purchase. And then we're leaving the next morning. And as we customarily do, you know this, because it's the same process that we do on all of our adventures and journeys, we meet in the morning to... Uh, to clean out any weeds, as we call them. In other words, when you have a small or a group of people with different personalities, oftentimes different beliefs, there are what we call weeds that come up, things that bother people. And we've learned along the way that if you don't clear those out and talk about them, it can be the downfall of the journey. There are two things that can bring a journey down. One is something that happens between the members that are on the journey. And the second is someone gets sick, which is why in our training before all journeys, we do the training for our physical health and why we're not, we have to bring hiking food so that we're not eating local food to avoid the possibility of anybody getting sick and making us turn back and abort the journey. So we were doing our weeds and our prayers in the morning and connecting, channeling to see what our instructions were for the day. In our morning channel, 
God came to speak to us. Now, he had spoken several times to us already on the preparation of the journey, but it's also always something very special, you say, when you know that it is God, our creator, our human race creator, that has come to talk to us. And he said to us, he said, I only have one thing to say to you as you board your ship today. And it is this. If you believe that I created you, who do you think created me? That was it. Now, if you want to talk about your mind being blown away, that was a mind-blowing comment for me. Even though I've not been following my Christianity, if you will, since Peru, since the information that had been given to me in the journey in Peru, I never really thought too much beyond God. I always knew that there was a creator, that he was divine, all love, and my father, in a way. For me, that's the relationship. Yeah, that's right. It was It was God, angels, mankind, and then something, you know, heaven and earth and hell. So it was very simple, (laughs) right? And now you're getting this new idea that there's not only he who's creating all of what we're seeing and experiencing in our universe and our galaxy and light, there's something beyond him as well. Exactly. And the journey, the sweet life journey the beings that came to speak to us, the information that we received. It wasn't all of the information of the, that's in the Sweet Life book that is published now. It was the beginning of it. But that question was answered in detail along with a lot of other information. And do you want to go down and start talking about some of that, or do you want to talk a little bit about some of the experiences that you had I remember when I was talking to Joanne, she was saying that there was all kinds of different lights that would show up and then other beings that would mm. show up. And, you know, when you read the Sweet Life book, you're reading this. It, it's almost like the Greek gods where there's just one after another, after another, after another of all these beings that were showing up and talking. And there was all these different types of energy. So um, we're kind of at this crossroads now where we can kind of go down any path that you would like. So do you want to talk more about like what information came to you or what type of genes came to you? I think it's all, let's kind of guide me in the story is probably the best way. What Joanne was talking to you about was one of our first encounters and our first encounter or our first, what we were directed to do first was to take the boat and to uh, go and dock, uh, anchor the boat in open water, the the back of it towards the west horizon and watch the sunset. The very first time that we did that, we had a remarkable experience. Now, not everybody, not all seven of us had it, but all the women had it. The men just had this experience from what they told us a few times. 
we were then guided to do that every night that we were on the ocean and, and for the two weeks we were on the ocean and every night we had the same experience. And what we saw were these orbs of light, different color lights, different shapes. They weren't just orbs because you think of orbs as round colored light. These had all kinds of different shapes. And we saw them coming from the horizon towards us. And there was a sense, there was not just what we were seeing visually, but it was what we were feeling at the same time. There was a giddishness, a a joy, a laughter. It was like, oh, my God, look, look, look. And look at those. Well, one, one person first said, do you see those? Orbs of light? Do you see that? And then, of course, everyone said, yes, yes, I see a heart shape. I see an octagon. I see purple. I see red with blue around it. You know, and it all became this excitement amongst all of the women there. The videographer tried to film it. Nothing came up on the film. Tried to take pictures. Nothing showed up in the pictures. Every time it happened, he tried, and it didn't come through the film. But these orbs, these light orbs came to us all the way to the back of the boat, and they actually came onto our physical bodies. I remember taking my hand, cupping it, and going to Roseanne. She had one on her shoulder, and I just kind of scooped it up. And all of a sudden, it was in my hand. I said, oh, my God, it's in my hand. And I took my hand and I put it on, I don't remember who, maybe Nancy's shoulder, and put it there. You could physically touch these orbs of light. And what we later learned to bring the story together, a couple of things. One were these were light beings. This was the way they were manifesting energetically and being able to travel through dimensions to come out into our third dimension. And they were doing that because they were light, traveling through light, traveling with light. The light they were traveling through was the light of the sun. And they were coming through that portal just opened precisely at a moment that allowed them to manifest and come into our dimension. So the sunset, if I understand you correctly, the sunset was their conduit to get to you at that time. That's their, that, I guess conduit is a, is a word to use too, but it was a physical energy. The light energy of the sun is what they were traveling on and with and coming wow. through to our dimension on. That's so a magic carpet. That, That was one encounter that we had with light beings. They weren't, if I remember right, I mean, I could, they weren't speaking to us at that time. We were just all feeling it. But what they did say later on was that as joyful and as much joy as it brought us, it brought them. They were as giddy as we were that this was working and that we were there, that we had made it and that 
the the line, the portal, the ability to be able to communicate was open. Uh, that is just so magical. <laughs> and it was magical, David. magical. That's a great word. It was magical. It was magical. So here was the next thing that we had been guided to do. We'd been told to hire the dive master. We had been told to purchase, rent, whatever it is that you do, 24 tanks of air to bring on the boat, which we did. And we were told that we would be guided to specific locations. We we were told that that design that we were going to pinpoint and go to, stop at, pinpoint, go to, and stop at, would somewhat uh, uh, be similar to the body of a spider. So if you think of a spider, you have the body of the spider, which was what was supposed to be our final destination, which was God's heaven under the sea, the portal to the entrance of God's heaven under the sea, which is called the golden echo chamber. That was our final destination. And our mission was to open that. We'll talk about that in a minute later on. So as uh, as we went from point to point, we were told that our diver and our videographer were going to dive. And when they were diving, the energy that they created from diving would allow for the communication of these very high light beams to come through and speak to us. And that wow. is exactly what happened. Every time we dive, we would get information that you now find in the Sweet Life book, varied information, messages of love, messages of who they are, messages of who we are, messages of what's happening to our world. Every time that we would dive or that the divers would dive, we would have one of these messages and information. And along that way, some of us had you know, mystical experiences. For me personally, I saw beings. I saw different images that they were sending. Everybody had their own way. When The voice was coming through Joanne, but many of us are experiencing the experience also by visions or visitations or whatnot. So that's what we did. We went from point to point in a very um, rough sea. Personally, I couldn't deal with the cockroaches on the boat, so I began eating less and less. I think I lost about 10 pounds on that trip. Even There's though not the, much of you to lose. <laughs> and there's not much I for you to lose. Oh, gosh, I just couldn't eat when I'd see a little titty cockroach there in the deck where the coffee was and the cookies. I just don't know when they they cooked beautifully, the chefs. They weren't cooking. They got fresh vegetables. They'd take the little boat and go get supplies and come back when we were anchored out and see, but I just couldn't eat. So from that perspective, that the journey was really difficult for me. Almost everyone except for Joanne and myself got really sick on the boat. Oh, are we talking I about had a, 
No, we're talking Beyonce sick. Before I left, I was telling my doctor about going on this journey. I was checking to see if I had to have shots. And he said to me, he said, are you taking an emergency medical kit? And I said, an emergency medical kit? No. I mean, did we ever have an emergency medical kit, David? No. Not that I remember. So who who would have thought of that? I didn't. He said, you need one. I said, well, I don't know. And he said, I'm going to donate for the trip your medical kit. I said, okay. We had IVs. We had fluid. We had medications. We had antibiotics. Everything was in that kit. And when I looked at it, he was explaining to me when he gave it to me what it was. I said, insane in my mind. I'm never going to need that stuff. Well, let me tell you, that kit was almost empty by the time we got home. Now, Richard, who is Joanne's son, is a, a fire chief, so he has all kinds of medical training. He was an emergency man, and Dan was a dentist, so he still is a doctor. So they knew what the purpose of the things in there were and how to use them. But the IV was used, dehydration, excessive, extensive vomiting, diarrhea, you, you name it. It happened on that boat. So it was not a fun cruise. Right. Can I interject here? Sure. Can I interject? When when the other men were diving, did you dive with them? I dove with them once. So they told Mm -hmm. me, Irene, this is when you have to dive. If you want to see pictures of my my dive, they're on my website, um, irenemarie.com. You can see me in my very chic wetsuit and... And even underwater, I, I made a I made a little video. I don't. <laughs> I made a little video of it. It was an extraordinary experience. Yeah, it, it really was. I had been guided that I was to find a blue star, and you know that's a whole other story about my journey here on Earth. I have a blue star tattooed on my hand, and it's a personal journey. Uh, but my the reason that I was asked to die was that I was asked to find a blue star in the ocean and to look up into the heavens to the queen of the heavens and to show her that star and to bring it back with me. When I was in the water, I was to do that. And I did. I found my blue star and I did that and I still have it today. It's not like a starfish, is it? It was the it was the tip of a coral that had five points on it, and it was what we call Mary Blue. And, of course, I wrote it on my, you know, I had a little board so I could write and talk to the dive master, and I said, Can, am I allowed to cut this because it was coral? And he said, you're not going to, yes, go ahead and cut it. So I, I did. I cut it and brought it back up with me. So obviously at this point you aren't like, out in the sea where the bottom of the ocean is a couple of thousand feet below you. Yes, that's where we are. And it's getting rockier and rockier as we get closer and closer to this point, this portal that opens to God's heaven under the sea. Okay, so let's go ahead and jump over to that spot because that's just okay. where So, 
See, what God said to us initially about the sweet life journey was that he had a gift for humanity, that he had created on this earth a world of light that was below our ocean floor, the door of which he had closed eons ago because humanity and man couldn't resonate with it. They just weren't at. Uh, their, their consciousness and their nature was not able to allow this light to flourish in our world. So we closed it. And he had decided with the other illuminated beings from the world from which he comes that in watching us, which is what they do, they watch us out of love. They are also part of protecting humanity and this world. So they're also watching to see how we are progressing. That they saw that our world was unraveling. This is the term that they use. And that the unraveling was from extreme hatred, anger, aggression, and the desire for power. And that if we did not change the course that humanity was growing in, then there was a possibility that humanity would no longer be. They didn't say it in those kind of words. Their words are much are much lovelier than that. It came from a place of true desire to keep what they call this beautiful race created by them, by God, by the world of light that brings them incredible joy at how through the free will that we have been given, because that was part of the plan, that they would not be puppets of another world, puppets of creators, that they would not be electronic, that they would be humans with the will to create a world that they wanted, that we wanted. And they've seen us create so many beautiful things that we have surprised and astounded them through centuries of existence. Of the little that they gave us, what we have been able to do is amazing for them and for the rest of the universe. Because according to them, we are unique. There are many beings many worlds, many consciousness in this universe, but none like the human race. We are unique, and we are in that uniqueness very special. And we were created that way. And they wanted us to know that because they feel, excuse me, they feel that if, David, can you give me a second so I can get some water? Yes. Go ahead. Please. Thank you. Quite a journey. 
oh, yeah, this is all very, very fascinating. A lot of this is all brand new to me, so I like to – I'm getting some firsthand information here, firsthand accounts. Well, I hope everybody's uh, taking – Say that again? I'm back. You're back. Quick. Yes. <laughs> okay. And, and, am I getting the points across properly? Well, yeah, you're saying that the human race is very unique. We have very unique abilities. They gave us freedom. They gave us, um, they gave us the choices to make without them interfering with us, so that we can learn from all of our mistakes. Is that when I was reading the book? So there's something very unique about what they wanted us to experience and how marvelled they are at what we create. Good. However, now the world's unraveling, and that is worrying them. Uh, are we back on? Yes. Oh, and what is worrying them is that we, we've lost the direction of the joy, and we're becoming, and we see that more and more today, overwhelmed with with fear and preoccupied, if you will, with uh, survival as versus this beautiful race that was abounding in creating, growing, and expanding. And they have a very big story about how this is happening and why this is happening and who is who yeah, who is and what is the force that is doing this? And it's human. This isn't an overtaken by the dark side. These are uh, humans that are on a quest for ultimate power and control. And their way of enticing humanity, which is a very slow process that they are involved in, in part is through technology, and a big part of it is through technology. By giving away, uh, by giving these little uh, technical advances that seem to make our, uh, our lives easier, that we say and they say make our lives easier, that connect, help us connect to each other and be more connected. But from the perspective of the beings that watch us, it is a ploy to, for us to give away more of our freedom, what we do, what we believe in, where we go, everything that in even just two decades ago was private to our own personality is now becoming stored, collected, and stored, and ultimately, according to the information in this book, is going to be used to control us more and more and to help this small group of people that in the Sweet Life book are called the they, and it's up to each one of us to 
try to figure out who the they is, although we have been given information, but that's not our job here to give that information. Uh, And to recognize that we are giving away our freedoms, and in giving away our freedoms, we are giving ourselves away and our children away to a a force and a source that does not have our interest and a love for us as individual humans. We're more like a, a workforce for them to be able to create what it is that are going to give them superpower, super control over humanity. So this is the important message in in the sweet life that the reason for the book, the reason that the information was given is to be able to try to spread this message. It's of course much more detailed in the book if you have the patience to read through the book because the book is it's a you have to first of all surrender to an anthropomorphic God that's come down to earth to speak to us that weaves in all this information in a novel format, although the book is nonfiction. One could say broadly falls into the narrative nonfiction category. But the fictional content the meeting with the board of directors, the novel part of the book is dictated by God. This is, none of this is, is something that other than the, uh, the open letter to the reader has been written by us. It all has been dictated to us. And uh, I, I had, a, when, when a lot of this information was being given to me, we were speaking with God one day. We were working. Information was coming through. We were working on the sweet on the sweet life book, and I said, "You know what, God? I said this sounds really fearful to me. It doesn't sound much different than the same kind of rhetoric that I've heard through religions that are trying to manipulate people with fear through governments or different kinds of governments that do the same." I said, this is, I I don't feel good about this. I'm questioning to God himself my my feelings about the information I'm being given and and, uh, giving this out to other people. And I think it's important for me to share what the answer was. And what God said to me was, we are not here to spread fear. We're here to to put a spotlight on the information that we hope and want our children, our humanity that we love so passionately and dearly to look at and see and for them to take control back of their lives. So although there is very bold facts that are being exposed in the book, we always have to go back to the important message in the book. Uh, the unraveling of our world is important, but also the incredible love that God and these beings of light and this master heart of light from galaxies, this galaxy and beyond 
the real message is that they are madly and passionately in love with us, that they watch over us. They, they want us to know that we are unique in the universe and there is no other race like us and that they want to help protect us to continue this wonderful world of humanity that exists and, and not to lose it from their view and from the universe's uh, joy of being able to be a part of, of this world that uh, that we are a part of to watch us. This is so remarkable because when I was reading the book, I was noticing just, just the excitement I was experiencing learning about these types of beings and these colors and the light and then the echo chamber and the life under the sea and the heavenly divers. And there was this, this massive experience that I was reading about that dealt with things that were beyond my normal comprehension and on kind of my normal um, way of thinking about things and experiencing things. And then that there was this, this other world out there that was really dedicated to the future of mankind, to the benefit of mankind, to love mankind, to, to help mankind. And that God has given us this freedom and our free will to make choices and that we will learn from our choices because, as he said, light gives birth to light and that light seeds light to continue and expand and grow and create. And I thought, wow, what an amazing concept this is. And so that light wants to constantly create new light. Everybody is its own flame. So we have these like really amazing experiences with these beings that you're talking about. We have the echo chamber, which I still want to talk to you more about. And then we have this warning, which was a very peculiar thing that was going on. It's like, and they were very specific about it, that there is some, there's things that are going on in space. We're giving up our freedom. There are these moguls that are out there that are behind the com- uh, the governments and um uh, corporations that want to ensnare us and control us, as you said, to have, so that they can have superpower. And it's like, wow, this is really, really profound information. So I'm wondering, is there, you know, like when you when you think about what was going on, I mean, there's this kind of like there's the there's this really beautiful sweetness over here, and yet there's this bittersweet experience over here. So how are you kind of putting this together in your own life? And what is it that you are sharing? What is it that you want? Um, and how did your life kind of change? Because now you have this new information, and I guess they want you to do something. I mean, obviously they want you to do something with it because you wrote this book and you're on the radio show talking about it. Well, I think the biggest change that has taken place over the last few years for me is that I have uh, – I'm not sure if it was. I have no resistance. I have no resistance now to speak of it. I'm. I, I'm. Uh, I use my judgment when I bring this up, uh, you know, socially. But w- whenever I have the opportunity, and I feel that there might be a person who is open to maybe hear something, start a conversation about the sweet life, then I do it. I was. 30 years in business, and over 15 years during that 30 years, I was on a spiritual quest that I talked to nobody about, barely even to my family. So I was in the closet. 
And I don't know if it's age, wisdom, the fact that my business closed, that now I feel uh, it doesn't matter. I mean, it, I, I don't know what held me. A lot of things probably held me back from speaking of it. I had five kids, too, and at different ages, and elementary school, high school, college, and I didn't want to do anything that either could affect them. And I right. don't think it was at the moment that that was the right time to go public with well, everything that I knew then. Since then, my kids have grown up. Since I took the sweet life journey, my business is, is retired, it's closed, and I feel more free to be able to stand up and say what I know to have, ex- uh, what, what I have experienced in my life. And what I believe at this moment in time, and I'm going to reiterate the moment in time, because one of my biggest lessons in my life has been, has been that your beliefs evolve and change. And I don't know what you know my next belief might be. But right now, what I believe is not that I want to convince people about the content of this book. I think it's fascinating personally. I think that anyone who has thought about do we exist alone in the universe would be fascinated to read about the world of light, about the Brotherhood of the Rose, about the guards of the Fleur de Lis, about the council that oversees different worlds in the universe. That's all in here. That's fascinating on itself. It sure in is. Of itself. But I also think that we have come to a point technologically where the pendulum is swinging. It's not in the middle. We're not just benefiting from this great advance that we have made technologically. We may be swinging it to a side that is not in our best interest. As, as a human race, I don't think, I don't, I don't know how most people feel, but I don't want to give my freedom, my freedom of choice to anybody. And my private life, my personal information, that belongs to me. There's nothing you can do now, David, where you're not signing a box that says, I agree. And I don't think any of us are reading what's in that disclosure of I agree. That's correct. We just, we're just checking the box. And I think that there's very little left about each one of us that is private to ourselves. And I don't think that's a good thing. And I think that, we, I think that the tech, technology can work. It can be part of our lives without giving this information away that could possibly, according to the sweet life, for sure, be giving our freedoms away for a bigger agenda of control and power. I feel like we're in a state where this is accelerating faster and faster and faster. In fact, um, I've read that there is many 5,000 points of data on every single individual on the planet that have been able that has been collected on us and we have been data mined and now like almost like everything that we're thinking is almost being 
programmed or actually being thought of so that they're recognizing what our next steps might be. I, I find it rather um, alarming myself. Well, I think, so let's talk about the the unbelievable solution to this, because I think most of us are probably feeling that, right? I mean, I get these emails that are called My Analytics. I never signed up for it. I mean, it's, it's telling me what I would, in my brain, want to know about from what I do and where I go. And I try to not give a password anywhere, not sign up. I try. But the, it's useless. It seems to me that it has become useless to try to keep safe my own information. There's just too many ways to collect it now. It's too much a part of our lives. So yes. what do we do to combat this? It sounds Besides taking our freedoms back little by little, God uses the analogy of instead of going to the drive-in teller where you have to pound in your pin or something to walk into the bank and do your transactions on the bank. Instead of buying your what you want on Amazon that's tracking everything that you buy, go to the store and purchase it there. Uh, these kind of little things that right now and what's going on in our country with the COVID crisis is even makes you think about how much less freedom that we have and how much more information we're having to uh, give away because we, you know, we're locked down essentially. We're very much blocked in many parts of the country. But the, on the on the energetic, conscious, emotional side, what the Sweet Life book says is that one of the biggest steps towards shifting this consciousness of power and greed and control is available to each one of us and that each one of us makes a difference in simply Giving sweetness away. That's why it's called the Sweet Life Book. In the kindness of our words, in the kindness of our actions, in the kindness of our thoughts. Remember, our thoughts create things. And just as if you read the Sweet Life Book, you have, you'll see that God did create us through the electricity of his mind, through his thought. We all have that same electricity. And yes. we all are creating our reality through those thoughts that we, that we do not stop. It's not that we necessarily perpetuate them, but we don't shift them or change them. Those habitual thoughts that we have grown up with, that we repeat over and over and over again, that don't serve our highest or best interest, those are the thoughts that we have to replace. With give us an example of that. Yeah, give us an if example. If you're thinking, okay, so you, your mind is saying, oh, my God, you know, I just, I just went into the store and I came out and 
I went into my car and I had my mask on, but I touched all these boxes and then I touched the car door and then I touched my steering wheel and I turned my keys and touched my keys and, oh my God, what do I do now? Maybe I touch something that's going to get me sick. And what you do, what I do, is is I don't go through that whole thought all the way down. I now catch that thought early on, and I change it. And I say, Irene, you have your mask on. You've got a little bit of hand sanitizer, hand sanitizer. Believe in God. Know you're healthy, and you're going to be healthy. I change my thoughts. I change it into a thought that's more positive. And we have thoughts that are more fearful and negative, especially I feel for myself now in these times. I'm working harder to move thoughts that are just coming up because I'm bombarded by so much around me, so much information around me that is negative that I have to work harder to shift those thoughts to something positive. It's very hard. You can't go from one thought to say, oh, uh, a thought like that to say, there is no COVID. God is going to take care of everything. The world is fine. No, that's bullshit. Excuse me. That's bull. Your mind is not (laughs) going to accept that. You have to make... You have to make small changes that your consciousness will believe in. Uh, Make small adjustments to those radical thoughts and do it as quickly as they come up in your mind. There's a real easy way to stop a negative thought. You might be counting a lot, but this is how it goes. Try it. All of you try it. When you get a negative thought, just start counting backwards from 17, 17, 16, 15, 14, 13. Before you know it, the thought's gone. And they come back a few seconds later. You may be counting again. But when you start counting backwards, the negative thought goes away. So well, it you is really also part of meditation. That's very similar right. to what meditation is in trying to get rid of the monkey mind. That's correct. That's correct. So this is a this is something that we have to do ourselves to to clear and clean our own consciousness, our own mind, so that collectively we can, rather than uh, adding to a collective fearful thought, we can try to tr- to add to a collective hopeful thought yes. for the future. Yes. And gratitude helps a lot for that too. Every night, every night I say, I find 10 things to be grateful for. God, thank me for my health. God, thank me for my home. God, thank me. Thank you for the the health of my children. God, thank you for my friends. God, thank you for David. I'm going to have an opportunity to talk to him. I I do this every night. And that gratitude also is something that shifts your energetic level, your consciousness into a more positive way. Yes. You know, I kind of been looking at this, and I just keep thinking about just how much information we're being bombarded by and from all different directions. And it's almost impossible now just to not, like, either listen to the news or look at your Facebook uh, posts, look on social media, read the newspaper, 
um, go outside, watch everybody kind of go through their routines and not just, and especially now because we're isolated, not feel like we're just being overwhelmed by negativity. And that to me uh, is starting to uh, really concern me. And I'm also recognizing that I want to counter just all of this negativity and everything that you see on the TV or the movies or whatnot with something very different and very positive. And I'm trying to stay positive and with a smile and, and be thankful for what I have. And, but it is getting harder and harder and harder because I feel like we're just in this ocean of, of noise and screaming. You don't even have to listen to anything. When you say yeah. that you, where we go, we go into a store and we have our masks on, doesn't it come up to your mind just looking at someone with a mask is the message. Look at how we're living. I mean, yeah. do you, have, you, have you realized how much of the energy in the face of an individual you're losing by covering their mouth? Uh-huh. Eyes are important. They're super important. But if you just do the test, somebody that, you know, that you can do it with, and you say, you know, stand six feet apart and say, just take your, your mask off your mouth for a second. And it's a different person. It's a different energy. So we're losing half of ourselves to what's going on. And we don't even need to listen to the news or the radio. Just go anywhere and look at a mask. And I think somehow subconsciously it tells you something's wrong. I was in China. Um, well, I was in Beijing and uh, Hong Kong and also in uh, Shanghai. And I was overwhelmed at how many people were wearing masks. And that was back in, that was eight years ago. And that, and mm-hmm. you're, I just couldn't get over that people just in just common life, just, just going outside and engaging the world, people were wearing masks. And I just thought that was completely bizarre. And now it's, it's here in our own country. You go outside, you go to the market, everybody's got a mask on. I have a mask on. I'm, I'm really dumbfounded by it. Yeah. Well, we have to go back to the Sweet Life book and try to spread this word. Try to yeah. spread this word so people will will read it. You know, there's, um, like I was saying earlier, it's not an easy read uh, in that it has a lot of different voices speaking, a little, uh, different literary styles in it, but you have at the beginning and at the end of every chapter, you have a, a message from the divine realms, from the uh, galactic light world. This is really important. If that's all you read, if you go through the book and you read the opening message, undersea message they're called, and the closing one, read the message from Parisha. Parisha was someone who visited us at our last book meeting. Someone, <laughs> she feels like a someone. She's a, mer- a mermaid from the energy of the world of mermen and mermaid and told us her story and their purpose yes. here on this world and where they come from, their world in the universe. It's a beautiful story. It's, it's, you, there's so much in this book that pick and choose it. 
you, you'll be guided to what's going to resonate with you. And I don't know if we have any time, but there's something here I would almost like to read as a closing. Well, we have, we have a few, we have like nine minutes left or a little less. So why don't you go ahead and tell us what you think your last words are and how the sweet life journey impacted you. Well, I'm going to do something else, if you allow me. I'm going to read this from the epilogue of the book. Okay. It is titled, You Are the Kings and Queens. You build your mausoleum and your statues to your kings, even to people who have destroyed nations, I see. I want there to be statues of the human race on part of your planet. I want there to be statues of a great group of farmers tilling the soil. I want there to be statues placed somewhere of your bricklayers. I want there to be statues of astronomers. These are the nameless. They are just named the human race. I want there to be statues of teachers and mothers and fathers, too. I want there to be statues of train conductors. I want there to be statues of pilots, scientists, and it goes on and on. You are the kings and queens of this planet. You are the ones who matter. You are the ones who need to rule. The human face, the human race, is filled with grace, with love, with deep passion and desire. The human race is filled with unbelievable talents that you cannot see. The human race can build a spaceship, grow a garden, build a tower, build a motor in a car. Each statue should be for the man without a name. It should be of the great power and energy that makes up the human race. It should be of the mother in the field who carries a child on her back. It should be of the fisherman in the sea who fishes to feed the world. Believe me when I say there should be more statues of the human race and what they are capable of doing. Not the people sitting in a boardroom making decisions about what is good for you, but those who are out on the beat, like the cop who keeps you safe. This is where the power and the rule should lie. You are the kings and queens of the human race. You are free. Now that is so beautiful. I remember reading that just the other day. Those are my last words. There's so much more of that kind of beauty and love in this book. And in this time where there is a lot of hardship and negativity, it's a gift to be able to read about this love and how we are loved and how special we are. Be reminded of the beautiful gift that we are to this earth the gift that this earth is to us, and the gift that we are to the universe. Please read the Sweet Life book. Okay, so where can I get your, where can I get this book? You can get it on Amazon.com. It's Amazon Books. uh, Off of the website, but it's uh, off of our website, which is www.com the foundation of heaven.org. That's also an email. If you want to email me, it's info at foundation of heaven.org. And if you'd like to call me, you know, you know, if you have a question, nobody called in or we didn't speak to anyone anyway. If anybody would like to have more conversations, 
Yeah. Do you have like a, a, a group that you get together with to be able to share this information? Do you have your own like kind of sweet life uh, teachings or anything like that? Not yet. I'm so is that something that you might be thinking about in the future? You're, is that something that, that you'd like to do? Yeah. I would. I would very much like to do that. So let me say again, it's www.foundationofheaven, one word, .org. That's our website. And the Sweet Life book, which is available on Amazon, on Amazon.com. Irene, you were just so special with so many, you know, personal in, um, anecdotes with all of this. And it was just so fascinating to kind of hear your side of the story, um, not only in the circle work that I was involved with as well, um, but just with the, the beauty and the grace of, of telling the story of being on the boat and seeing the, the, the light shapes and what God wants for us. And, I mean, it's, all that is just so beautiful. And I know how difficult these journeys are. I mean, it just takes everything out of you. But, boy, once you get through it and you get onto the other side, you're going, oh, my God, look what I just did and I, I accomplished. So um, and, I just can't And what a gift. And what a gift. So, um, David, two minutes. Two minutes. Okay. So why don't I go ahead and, Irene, is there any last little uh, word that you'd like to give? Because otherwise I'm just going to go ahead and, and uh, conclude the show. I just want to remind everyone that we are very much loved. We are always being watched from a place of love and amazement and that we're far more than we believe. We're far more, each and every one of us. And let us not forget that. And let us know that every single person can make a difference in this world and in human consciousness. Just use a little sweetness. Spread a little sweetness. I love you all. Thank you, David. Thank you, Barbara. I Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Uh, so anyway, that's going to conclude our show. Irene, you are fantastic and terrific and super insightful. So everybody out there, thank you for coming on. I also want to thank all my listeners, and I hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, I really appreciate you listening. And please follow, subscribe, or like us on Blog Talk Radio, YouTube, and my Facebook page. Um, without further ado, let's journey together. Good night and have a great day. Actually, good day and have a great day. <laughs>